This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 163. You break my record. Now I break you like I break your friend. Chung Lee, Bloodsport. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. And today's show is also sponsored by the Heart Chart Screenwriting Masterclass taught by legendary screenwriter James V. Hart, the writer of Bram Stoker's Dracula, Hook, and Contact, to name a few. His unique story mapping system will teach you how to get your script ready for production and the marketplace. To gain instant access, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash heart chart. That's H-A-R-T chart. Well, guys, I have a treat for you today. We have on the show the creator of a very seminal film of my, uh, my childhood, but also in cinema history. We have the writer-director, Sheldon Letich, and he is the creative force behind films like Bloodsport, Ruskies, Rambo 3, Lionheart, Double Impact, and many, many more. But we focus a lot in this episode on Bloodsport because you have to remember that when Bloodsport came out in the mid-80s or so, mid to late 80s, there had never really been anything like that. Yes, there was uh, Enter the Dragon, but it wasn't the same way. There wasn't like these characters and people from different parts of the world who had different fighting styles. Bloodsport was the very first time that ever was put on screen. And it started Mortal Kombat, 
uh, Street Fighter, and uh, just a slew of other video games. So without Sheldon helping create Bloodsport, you would have not had all of these amazing uh, video games and other movies that have been uh, coming out for years. And one of the other amazing things about Bloodsport that it was marketed as a true story, but it wasn't. It was a complete fabrication. It was made by a man, uh, the, the guy who who came up with these uh, original story based on a true story is a, name, a guy named Frank Dukes, who the movie is supposedly based on. And all of this stuff, which eventually came out that he was essentially a con man, according to Sheldon and, and, and the press, uh, that everything was completely made up. And Sheldon and I go into the weeds about Bloodsport and Lionheart and John claude Van Damme. And he was basically there at the beginning of his career and how it all started and just the glory of 80s action films. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Sheldon Lettich. I'd like to welcome to the show Sheldon Lettich. How you doing, Sheldon? I'm doing great today. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. I, it is an th- absolute thrill. Like the, the 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 young teenage boy that worked at the video store in the late '80s, early '90s is freaking out right now. So I do appreciate you coming on. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm actually surprised, happily surprised by just how big a thing these '80s and '90s action movies have become. There's just yeah, there's there's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of fans out there. Uh, just the other day, I noticed that there was a book on uh, Sam Furstenberg, who basically directed ninja movies for canon. There's a whole book about this guy. So, uh, yeah, these, these movies, are they're, they're like crawling out of the weeds. Uh, it turns out that there's a lot of people that have fond, nostalgic memories of that period. Uh, no. You know, when yeah, Van, you know, Van Damme and Schwarzenegger and Stallone and mm-hmm. Chuck Norris, people People have really fond memories of those movies, so uh, so here I am being interviewed uh, in twenty twenty one. You know, it's fascinating because you know those the, those that time period, pretty much from the early to mid eighties, all the way to the, the pretty much the nineties. That that window, uh, those movies cannot be made that way anymore. Like they they just wouldn't they just wouldn't be made, especially not with those budgets and and, and those kind of. Stars. It's just such a window in time of a specific kind, like the country, the the society, everything. I mean, when you see Arnold and you see Jean Claude and you see these guys just ripped up, muscle bound, just sweating, and you know, you know, Jean Claude with his splits and all this, like that stuff wouldn't play nearly as well in today's world. But they're so wonderful to watch back then. Yeah. Well, in the late nineties. they, the studios realized, you know what, we don't have to deal with these action guys with these big egos and big muscles and all that. Let's just get some real actors like Keanu Reeves and teach them how to do some of the martial arts stuff. And then we've got stuntmen to do all the difficult stuff. We'll cut it all together. We'll make the cutting really fast. Nobody will notice. And you don't have to deal with, uh, uh, you know, with Chuck Norris. You don't have to deal with, with real karate guys. And try to make an actor out of them. We'll we'll start with actors, and we'll make them look like we'll we'll make them look like badasses. So uh, that's what really changed. That was like I would say like mid to late nineties that started shifting over. Yeah, with speed. Uh, yeah, with speed and Point Break and 
and Matrix for Keanu. But yeah, then all these other actors. I mean, Liam Neeson, for God's sakes. I mean, right, Liam, right. Yeah. Liam Neeson's an action star. Like when you see him in Schindler's List, you don't think Taken. <laughs> right. But, you know, the first uh, the first guy to uh, turn Liam Neeson into an action star was really Sam Raimi with Darkman. That's right. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, Boaz and I, we, we, we knew Sam really well back mm-hmm. then. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I was doing Van Damme movies, and, and Boaz wrote um, uh, a Dolph movie. He wrote uh, um, The Punisher, mm-hmm. the first Punisher movie. And uh, so we were a little surprised. Like, you know, Liam Neeson, you sure about this? <laughs> and it, it ended up working <laughs> out pretty well. He did okay. And they've all went that way since then. Absolutely. So, um, so tell me, how did you get started in the business? How did you jump in? Well, um, it's uh, it, it's kind of a long, circuitous story. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, uh, I started writing screenplays. Um, I guess um, I guess I was in my my thirties. Um, um, I just got this bug that I wanted to. Uh, well, well, go back. I'll go back even further. I originally wanted to be a cinematographer, you know, director of photography. Mm-hmm. And I went to the American Film Institute and that was my, I was a cinematography fellow there at the American Film Institute. So that was my, my, my focus. And while I was there, I, um, um, I, I started getting interested in writing and directing. I was, I was monitoring the writing classes. There were some classes taught by a, a, a kind of well-known older screenwriter. Um, and um, at that school, um, we had directing fellows, producing fellows, writing fellows, cinematography fellows. I was, I was a cinematography fellow. I'm not a cinematographer now, but mm-hmm. that's what I was interested in at the time. wanted to be a DP. And um, uh, so I started reading writing samples by some of the um, writing fellows. And I was very impressed by their credentials. You know, these, uh, most of these people had, um, uh, uh, you know, they had uh, MFAs from a lot of uh, uh, big colleges. You know, they MFA in creative writing, MFA in stage direction. Uh, so these were people with some heavy-duty credentials. Me, I had no credentials like that at all. Uh, uh, I didn't even have a bachelor's degree. Uh, I was basically a photographer. At the time, I was I was a commercial photographer for about 11 years, mm-hmm. and so started reading these screenplays, and uh, um, and I found myself feeling very unimpressed. Um, I was I was reading these these screenplays that these guys were writing, and thinking, well, I think I could do better than this. It's not very good, <laughs> okay. Um, and um, then and even though I had not done any writing before. Um, I was I was just thinking um, uh, I should give this a try because uh, uh, I'm really disappointed with what I'm reading here. And then as a cinematography fellow, I was uh, uh, supposed to help the directing fellows direct their short films. So every directing fellow had to make a number of films. We would shoot them on, on video at the time. And um, so I ended up working with a number of uh, directing fellows. And again, they had some really amazing credentials, you know, like, you know, uh, MFA from this Ivy League school and, uh, uh, you know, directed plays in New York and 
and all of this. Um, uh, yeah, and there were there were a number of them that uh, came from theater. Um, so uh, I had none of that in my background, but I would end up being a cinematographer, and I found that I was helping these guys or girls far more than I really should have been. Um, they just really did not have a clue as to where to put the camera. They would be good at directing actors, but really wouldn't know where to put the camera, uh, how to set up a shot, uh, any number of things that I would help them with. And it just sort of came naturally to me. Um, and so I started thinking, uh, well, maybe I should give this a shot also. So everybody who went to the AFI had an opportunity to make their own film on video. Uh, they would give you the resources. You'd have the camera. Mm -hmm. You'd put together a crew with some of the other students. And um, so I made this little um, science fiction piece. Uh, actually, the, the, the films generally were about 15 minutes, 20 minutes long. I made this piece. I based it on an Arthur C. Clarke short story. And um, uh, it ended up being 45 minutes long. Uh, and I was just surprised at how well it turned out. And I, as I was working on it, I started thinking, you know what, I think I've, I've sort of got a knack for doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I saw we were working with, working with the act. I wrote the script, also mm -hmm. wrote this all by myself, um, uh, based on this Arthur C. Clarke short story. Um, and um, um, so I started changing my focus away from cinematography to writing and directing. Um, and um, that's what kind of got... Uh, that's that's where the bug really bit me was at uh, AFI, mm -hmm. uh, and then um, I believe it, yeah it was shortly after that. Um, uh, yeah, I'm a Vietnam veteran also, and there was this uh, this theater this actor theater director uh, named John DeFusco who was putting together uh, he wanted to put together a theatrical piece about Vietnam, and he was looking for actual Vietnam veterans who were actors to be in this piece. There was no, there was no play, there was nothing written. Uh, he just had this idea for putting this together. Um, I think he put something together like that before. He was like teaching acting in prison. He wasn't a prisoner, he was just an acting coach. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he thought, you know, I'm a Vietnam veteran, let me put together something about Vietnam. So he put an ad in um, uh, there was uh, there were a couple of uh, uh, papers at the time. This is this was pre-internet. Sure. Um, what are, what are so, these papers you speak of? I don't understand. Huh? What, what, are they, what, is this, what is this paper you speak <laughs> of? Uh, and um, there was this one like weekly newsletter. I forgot what it was called now, but mm -hmm. he put an ad in it saying, "I'm putting together a play, looking for actors who are also Vietnam veterans for a play that I'm." going to be putting together about about the Vietnam experience. So I got in touch with this guy and I told him, look, I'm I'm not an actor. I don't pretend to be an actor. I don't want to be an actor. However, I'm a writer and I had written um, a couple of screenplays that dealt with Vietnam. Uh, so I was already writing at this at this time. Um, and um, he uh, decided to work with me. So I was the um, the writer member of this small ensemble that created this theatrical piece that ended up being called Tracers. And, um, um, and that actually, uh, uh, we actually put this thing together. Uh, we had, um, 
um, a, a number of Vietnam veterans in it who were actors. And uh, uh, we staged it at a theater called um, The Odyssey in West L.A. Uh, and it kind of became this little mini sensation. Uh, ended up playing, um, um, they ended up taking it on the road. They got invited to perform it in, on, um, in New York City. Um, uh, actually, it was Joseph Papp's Theater, mm -hmm. uh, put the play on. And then it was in Chicago at the Steppenwolf Theater, where it was directed by Gary Sinise, of all people. Wow. Uh, I think that maybe helped get Gary Sinise into the mindset of uh, uh, exploring what Vietnam veterans are all about, because he's really been... Uh, he's really been big on advocating for Vietnam. Yes, he has. Mm -hmm. And I believe that was his first, his, the first time that he got involved with that subject. And, you know, then ended up playing Lieutenant Dan and uh, uh, Forrest Gump. And uh, uh, he's a big advocate for veterans now. But uh, that was his first taste of that. So anyways, Tracers became this little sensation. Um, didn't do anything for me career-wise. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, but again, the, 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 it kind of gave me the bug. Uh, uh, I started thinking, you know, I should I should start focusing rather than photography. This, I start focusing on writing and directing. So when uh, you were so when you were you, when you started to change your focus to writing and directing, obviously writing was the the way in uh, to start because you hadn't really proven yourself. It was I'm assuming still very difficult to become a director out of right. nowhere even even in the late mm. late 70s early 80s so your your first script that i saw that got sold at least and produced was a, a wonderful little cult classic called ruskies um yes when i when i again you you're hitting my sweet spot 87 to 93 that's when i was uh, at the video store so right, right. i was in, i just saw everything so i remember ruskies who starred a very young uh, Oscar-winning actor by the name of Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> who went by the name Leaf Phoenix at the time. Right. Yeah. There's exactly. no Joaquin Phoenix on the uh, poster. It's Leaf Phoenix. Which is, which is hilarious. But I guess that was like the stage name because no one's going to go see Joaquin. you got to have some sort of cool name. I'm sure the agent well, told them. <laughs> but his brothers and sisters all had uh, – yeah. I, I guess their, their, parents were, their parents were hippies. And they, yeah. they all the kids – Name is based on some, some something natural. So River. Uh, his brother was River Phoenix, and then there was a sister named Summer Phoenix, I believe. I think she's even in in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, I guess his birth name might have been Joaquin. But then for, they, for stage names, they gave Leaf. names like Leaf and River and Summer. <laughs> that's and that's I, brilliant. And he's the thing is he's he's really good. Well, I mean, you could. I'm not sure how old he was, but I think he was like a young teen, maybe. Yeah, probably like 12, 13, 14, something like that. Right, right, yeah. But it, look, uh, but it looked great. So, how did you get that? Like, how did that whole thing come about? How did you get? How did you come up with the idea for for Ruskies? Because for people not not understanding what it was like in the 80s with the whole Russian, you know, right. Cold War thing, it it was a thing. It was a real. We were all terrified if we, that the bomb was going right. to come at any moment. Well, uh, it's funny. Um, uh, I think this is maybe the first interview that I've done where I'm talking about Ruskies. Because nobody asks, nobody asks about that. They want to know about Van Damme and Stallone. We'll, we'll get, we'll get there. We'll get there. But I want, 
I want to take we're you way back. We're, yeah, we went way back to uh, tracers. Okay, right, so. right. So I want to, I want to, I want to bring in Ruskies because it's. I always like going down the road because first of all, people who haven't seen Ruskies, it's just such a fun movie. Um, mm-hmm. The whole concept of it was so much fun. But how did you come up with that idea? Well, I had a, um, I had a writing partner at the time um, named Alan Jake Lickman, um, and. Um, um, he, he he really hadn't didn't have many movies made, but he was a, he was a he was a, a writer. He was a, a, a real screenwriter. Had a, a couple of things produced, um, and um, uh, he's the one that introduced me to computers and uh, word processing. Because before that, typewriter. I was using a typewriter. Yeah, mm-hmm. typewriter or writing things down on yellow pads. Um, so. Um, we're sitting around at his house one day, just, uh, just talking about various things. And um, I had a friend uh, who was one of my closest friends in high school who was in the Navy after high school. And he was stationed at a Navy base in Maine. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the show. So, way up there in north, northeast. Um, and uh, it was a radio station, very remote, isolated radio station in Maine. And he told me uh, one day they found a raft washed up on the beach and it had Cyrillic writing on it. It was a Russian raft. Basically, the Russians. Uh, and what, what's funny to me is even back then, people didn't believe that the Russians were surveilling our coast. And they were. They, they had submarines going up and down the East Coast and West Coast, listening in for radio signals, basically monitoring us um, and um, um, probably making maps in case they wanted to do an invasion of how to, you know, what, what, what's the best beach to approach. Anyways, it was a Russian raft that they had found. Um, and um, no sign of the Russians, just, just the raft. Obviously, they, they got into some kind of distress uh, had to abandon the raft. The raft washed up on the beach. 
And my friend uh, had been told, um, you're never to speak of this. You're not to tell anybody about this. You found this raft. So anyway, I told the story to Alan, and um, uh, we both thought, you know what? This is kind of a good basis. Uh, uh, this is a good starting off point for a screen. Uh, and let's have some kids find it. Okay, so some kids find a raft. Very, eight, very, a 80s, very 80s. Very 80s. Um, and um, these kids are into um, uh, 80s style action. This is even, this is really, this is when right Ruski, around the time. When, that, yeah, when did come out? Like 86, 80, 85? It might have been right around then. Because so the, I know I, I wrote it, I wrote it before Bloodsport. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, uh, and I even invited Van Damme to uh, the first screening of Ruski's, uh, which he came to and, um, and thought, you know what? I should have been that Russian guy in the movie. I would have done much better than him, which is true. I think Jean-Claude would have been better. I would, I would, I would agree with you. I would agree right, with you. Right, right. So um, these kids are into um, uh, like, like war comics. Sure. Uh, yeah. And they've got a hero named Sergeant Slaughter. Uh -huh. Well, there was a wrestler who ended up calling himself Sergeant Slaughter, so we couldn't use that. By the time the movie got made, it got changed to Sergeant Slammer. But even so, the kids are into these comic books, and so um, you know they uh, uh, they would like nothing better than to be war heroes, to do something like capture a Russian. Well, they find out about this the the raft, and then the Russian one Russian survives. Uh, actually, they all they all survive, but one of them ends up uh, on the beach, um, and he uh, takes refuge in uh, a clubhouse that these kids have set up. They've got a little little clubhouse on mm -hmm. the beach, and so they find him and they um, they quote capture him, like, wow, we're real heroes. We just captured we just captured a Russian spy. Right, 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 now, right. Hang on, let me just uh, hang that up. Um, so. That was pretty much the basis for it, um, and, and that, we decided to have three kids, yeah. and uh, um, and we ended up not only is Joaquin Phoenix in it, but um, um, there's the blonde kid that was in those. Uh, oh, Christmas Christmas Story movie, yeah, I forgot his name, but yeah, I forgot it. Peter Billingsley. Yes, he was. I noticed that too. Who's, who's now directing? He's no, a director. He's, he's directing like uh, a lot of TV stuff. Yeah, he's a big TV uh, director now. So then Ruski's so Ruski's obviously gets you in the door. And and I remember it being a moderate it, hit. It, it it was not no it was, didn't do well actually Did, it didn't do all that well. Video I it, think it found its audience in video and cable more than anything. Yeah yeah, but it didn't really open any doors for me. Just like Tracers did not really open any doors for me because it was this it was this play. It was kind of an obscure play. It got, right. got a lot of great reviews, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, it didn't open any doors for me. Um, but, so then how? In God's Green Earth, did you come up with Bloodsport? Because, and how did you get involved with Bloodsport? How did you meet Jean-Claude? Because before we, before you answer this question, I, I just want everybody to understand. When you look at Bloodsport now, everyone's like, oh, that looks kind of like, oh, we've seen that a thousand times. I'm like, but when Bloodsport came out, there was nothing ever. It was really fresh. Was the really only fresh. thing, the only thing that's even remotely close to it on a much smaller level was Enter the Dragon. Um, and at a much smaller level, but the concept of these character fighters, which sounds like Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat. I mean, you all based on Bloodsport. You all you launched a billions and billion dollar industries off of this one movie. Not to mention 
a young uh, Belgium guy named uh, Jean Claude. Right, right. <laughs> All right, so um, so we'll we'll skip ahead to Bloodsport. Yes. Um, and um, uh, so here's how I got to that. Uh, I wrote a screenplay called Firebase, which is basically um, uh, you ever see Zulu? Yeah, I remember. Oh God, I remember Zulu. Yeah. Small, small group of British guys being besieged by thousands of Zulus in mm -hmm. uh, Africa. Um, so I saw this movie and was really knocked out by it. And I came up with this idea of Firebase, which is kind of the same story. It's like a, a, a disparate group of Americans on this hilltop firebase in South Vietnam, and they get attacked by hordes of Viet Cong and North Vietnamese um, and have to fight them off. And it was a small group that was, there were three different groups. There were Marines, Army, the Army guys were the artillery guys on the, on the hilltop with the artillery pieces, and then some Army Rangers. And they all end up uh, uh, together, not that they're supposed to be together, but they kind of get forced into this situation. And they all dislike one another at first, but then once they get attacked, uh, then they start banding together, and it's basically teamwork against this uh, this invading horde. So, anyways, um, I wrote this screenplay, and um, um, and there were a lot of people that were very impressed with it, um, including um, I actually had a meeting. Uh, Walter Hill and Joel Silver had read it. Mm -hmm. They liked it, and Walter Hill wanted to make it his next movie. So I actually had a meeting with them about mm -hmm. that. It, it didn't happen simply because Walter Hill had a deal with Paramount. This is right after, um, um, I think... 48 uh, hours? 48 hours, right after 48 hours. And so he brings them this big Vietnam War piece, and they basically said, guys, come on, nobody wants to see a movie about Vietnam. This is all pre-platoon. Okay? Of course, of course. Um, so uh, it ended up not happening. Um, but in the meanwhile, I had gotten myself an agent uh, based on somebody reading the script and saying, hey, you need an agent. And they, they got it to this guy, Harold Moskowitz. And Harold also represented this guy named Frank Dukes. And Frank had written a book that took place in Vietnam. Uh, called The Last Rainbow. And um, it was a thousand pages long. Jesus. Frank wrote this thousand, like this, you know, typewritten. Uh, he had written this book. And Harold was thinking, you know, I could probably sell this book if I could cut it in half. So um, he got in touch with me and said, look, I want you to read this book and let me know if you'd be interested in editing it down. So that it's only 500 pages. So I read the book, and I was kind of kind of impressed with it. It was, it was pretty well written. Um, uh, Frank's actually not a bad writer, uh, which is a surprising fact about him. Uh, actually, it sh shouldn't be surprising because he makes up so many stories. Uh, <laughs> but um, anyways, uh, so I was impressed with the writing, with the book. And he did a lot of research. So Frank used to tell people back then that he was a Vietnam veteran, that he won all these medals, uh, that he was this war hero, all of which turned out to be complete bullshit. But he read a lot of, he read books, he listened to stories from people, and he put this all together, and it sounded pretty authentic to me. And I'm, I'm, I was actually in Vietnam myself, and as I'm reading this book, and I'm thinking, well, this, this sounds like this guy might have actually been there. Right. 
so um, I wanted to meet him, and I got his number from Harold, and um, we got together, and uh, uh, we just kind of hit it off uh, right away. And uh, at the time, Frank had a couple of martial arts studios. Uh, he might have only had one at the time that I first met him. Um, but um, he pretty much um, was telling people, he made up this myth about himself, that he was uh, trained in the secret art of ninjutsu. Uh, there was a, um, uh, he had a teacher, uh, kind of like Mr. Miyagi and Karate Kid, uh, whose name was Tiger Tanaka. Okay, Tiger Tanaka, by the way, happened to be a character in a James Bond book called You Only Live Twice, but Frank borrowed the name and said that was my teacher, and he was a descendant from, you know, like 40 generations of ninja, and he taught me personally the secret art of ninjutsu. Um, so he had this martial arts dojo, and um, another thing that he would say, he had, this, he had some flyers for the school, and he would say that he was the first Westerner to compete in this contest called the Kumite. Um, and is, that, is that a real? Is that a Kumite real or not? Apparently not. Oh my God. <laughs> apparently not. No, oh my God. Making, he was making all this shit up uh, because, and again, he, he did research. He read books. There were books about ninja and there was martial arts magazines at the time. Sure. Uh, and no internet was, and no internet, no Google. No internet. No internet to check up on this stuff. And there was a um, uh, and there was a movie called uh, uh, Enter the Dragon, which is basically it's not by not by, not by any means is it the same story. Uh -huh. uh, Enter the Dragon is basically about uh, cops infiltrating this island stronghold that's run by this drug lord, human trafficking uh, lord. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and I guess that's the dragon. We have to find a way to enter the dragon. We've got to take this guy down. That's what the story's about. It's not about a tournament. But he happens to have tournaments on his island every so often. And at one of these tournaments, uh, uh, and actually I believe that's how Bruce Lee, that's Bruce Lee's entree to the island, is he's going there to participate mm -hmm. in the tournament. Um, so that's how we ended up with the tournaments. Anyways, um, so Frank had seen this movie. A lot of people had seen this movie. It was actually released by huge. Warner Brothers. It was huge. Yeah. Um, and um, so Frank made up this whole story about this competition called the Kumite. And Frank has got – there's this um, psychological disturbance called the Walter Mitty syndrome uh, or the Walter Mitty complex. This is a real thing. You, you mm -hmm. can look it up on the internet and there are psychiatrists that have – studied this. And Walter Mitty, I don't know if you've ever heard of the film. Well, actually, yeah, that's, yeah the, uh, one with ben, the one with Ben Stiller? Well, before that, it was a short story by James Thurber, mm -hmm. very short story, that da was turned into a Danny Kaye movie oh, in God. the 40s yeah, called yeah. The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. And Walter Mitty is basically the guy, just an ordinary guy, nerdy guy, um, who makes up these fantastic stories, these heroic stories, and puts and casts himself as the main character in these stories. And that's what Danny Kay was 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 doing, uh, uh, trying to impress the girls by saying, "Well, I did this, I did that." Um, 
and uh, I'm a war hero. I've uh, it, it, it basically Frank uh, did the same thing. He um, um, he was fixated on Vietnam in particular because it was happening when he was a teenager. And um, so he read everything he could on Vietnam and then ended up making up stories about himself being um, in the Marine Corps, uh, being sent to Vietnam, actually being recruited into some kind of special program. He was some right. kind of special forces guy. Right. Yeah. Okay. So right. I, I, I'm like, right. This is like you're blowing my mind. None of this is true. No, no. Um, <laughs> and it turns out that Frank is not the only one who makes up stories like this about his military heroics and um there's um um uh, it's a phenomenon that's called uh stolen valor mm -hmm. now back when i met frank that term did not exist uh some some people started doing research on this uh, uh because like if you're a real veteran if you've really been in vietnam and then you find out that people are faking it and saying i won all these medals out of vietnam oh. this oh. hero well, it, it really irks you, okay? <laughs> so, uh, to say the least. Yeah. So there's this book called Stolen Valor. Um, um, I've got a copy of it here. Mm -hmm. um, and they, um, uh, they came up with this term, Stolen Valor. And Frank is even in the book. They even Frank is actually one of the people that they researched. After, uh, after Bloodsport came out and all that stuff. Uh, or, I think it was, yes, it was after Bloodsport came out right. because... <clears throat> They mention blood sport in the book. So, okay. So, um, wait a minute. So, then, so this is okay. So, because I remember when blood sport came out, is that that it was promoted as a true story. That was one of the biggest selling right. points of the film. You were like, this yeah. so surreal. Like, this really happened. I have to ask you before we get to John Claude, how the hell did this get passed? Like, this was a Warner Brother, it was a Canon release, it was a Canon production. Canon. But Warner Brother, yeah, but Warner Brother released. No, no, it was a Canon release. Canon had their own releasing company at the time. If I re okay, if I remember correctly, Warner Brothers was involved in some way, shape, or form with the uh, release of that. Not wasn't. Maybe video, maybe video. Video. Yeah, but the video. Canon, <clears throat> Canon went bankrupt. They went belly up, and then Warner Brothers and I believe MGM uh, uh, raided their video library, and they got the rights to a lot of their stuff. Right. So Warner Brothers picked up. Uh, Bloodsport. Got it. Uh, That's how I knew it. Not involved. Now, there was an article. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> see, Frank was telling this, these stories to everybody, including the editor of Black Belt Magazine, who bought into it. I'm talking, okay, now I didn't know shit about the martial arts world. I had never, I had not even seen Enter the Dragon before mm -hmm. I got involved with Frank and Bloodsport. Um, but he had, he showed me this article in Black Belt Magazine. Okay, yeah, then, like, there's yeah. no better authority. No, right? you're, you're, of course, on the internet back then. But here's Black Belt Magazine, and here's an article called Kumite: A Learning Experience, and it's all about Frank Dukes. And uh, done. Black done. Belt Magazine is saying that this has some validity to it. Who am I to say it's bullshit? Okay, I can't. I can't wow. do a Google search. All right. Uh, so I bought so, into it. So it's like Catch Me If You Can, the guy from Catch Me If You Can. Like he's just telling yeah, up. Absolutely. He's, he's just it's telling. Totally he's just telling stories, and he's getting it to at such a high level of artistry in this in this the BS that he's throwing out there that he's got now proof from right. legitimate people. So now you got so all of these things are coming together, 
And I, I'm assuming you, you hear about this and you're going to say, I got to write the script for this, right? Is that how it goes? Well, kind of. Uh, uh, basically, look, Frank told me lots of stories, okay? Frank used to tell people uh, that he was awarded the Medal of Honor for his heroics in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Not just me, plenty of people. Um, and uh, so he would tell me stories. And, he, and some of this stuff was published in magazines. He got some of the stuff in the magazines about, uh, um, uh, about his various heroics and how he won all these medals. There's a photograph of him. I could, I could get you the, mm -hmm. the, the book, actually, if you want to see. There's a photograph of him wearing all these ribbons. So he's 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 all the way in. He's all in. He is all in on this on this con. He is all in. It's a con, and he's a con man, basically. Yeah, it's a con. I mean, this is a this is apt. And he's really good. Look, li listen, listen. We're, we we all might exaggerate a story here or there in our lifetimes, and you're like, oh, this or that, fine. But this is this is a whole other level. There's he invented a a myth, a legend. He even calls himself the myth, the legend, the real Frank Dukes. Uh, and it's all bullshit. So, um, uh, oh my god! Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty damn amazing. So the story, and, so the story for Bloodsport, like, did you make that story up, or did you? Did Frank help you just come up with the story and you just wrote the script? How did that the creation of it come? Well, it wasn't Frank. See, it, it, there's a difference between story and um, um, and and you know the real like f facts, information. Um, I forgot what the term is right now for uh, for what it is. Oh, source material. Mm -hmm. It's called source. According to the Writers Guild, there's source material, which is not the same as a story. Source mm -hmm. material is the raw facts. Okay, like um, you know, Erin Brockovich. Well, her story was source material. Mm -hmm. The movie Gandhi. Gandhi's life. Story source, source material. material. Sure. But Gandhi write the the script? No, he didn't. But this is my true life story. Well, Frank was telling people this is his true life story. So um, <laughs> he had been telling me all these tales about the Kumite. He told me about the, and I, I read the article. I, I got the article here. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, I could I, I could send it to you mm -hmm. uh, uh, if you need some uh, if you need some visuals to go along. Sure, sure, sure. Got sure. the article. I've got all this stuff on Frank, the stolen valor, yeah, yeah, the yeah. picture of him in the Marine Corps uniform. And turns out, um, so there are. Um we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. 
Com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now back to the show. There are people that have started a a couple of groups out there that do research into stolen valor. Right. Because they just got tired of hearing this shit. Okay, people lying about uh, uh, about their credentials, lying about people that were not even in the military, saying mm-hmm. that they were in the military and they won medals. Frank, it turns out, once these people started doing their research, then I found out what was true about Frank because they they dug it, they got the military records from the government and they published this stuff. And basically, Frank was in the Marine Corps reserves. So he actually was, he went to Marine Corps boot camp, but that was about it. He was in the, in the reserves and he was a wireman, which means guy, a guy who climbs up on a pole and strings communications wire. Uh, that's what he did. He was a pole man. Yeah. So he was never sent overseas. There was nothing in his military record about any kind of uh, specialized training. Well, that's, that's what they, but, but Sheldon, that's what they want you to think. Obviously, it's all been it's all behind the scenes. It's been black. It's blacklisted. That's, Frank. That's black, you can't. I can't show it to you because I was in. A, it's secret. Don't you understand? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the government is uh, basically there. They've redacted everything. That's what I'm and saying. The government. It's the government. They're going to tell you that I'm lying, but I'm telling you the truth. And he actually had, he wrote oh. a book about himself. Oh my God! Called Secret Man. Of course, he did. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Pause we'll, 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 for a second. Yeah. I'm going to show you this stuff, all right? It's, stolen Valor. Sure, sure. Got it, got right. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got it. And Frank's not the only one in here. Is it? Oh, there's, it's a pretty thick book, I'm assuming. Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are who have been doing this. Which is, I, I just could not conceive of it at the time. I just couldn't believe. Like, somebody's going to say that they were... In the military, and they yeah, were yeah, 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 sure. No, no, who would lie about something like that? But here, here we go. Look, uh, I don't know if you, how well you can see it. Yeah, the bottom one. Yeah, and the top—that's him oh. with, in his uniform. Yeah, 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 with yeah, all yeah. these medals. Okay, and the bottom one is one of his karate poses. Oh my god! Uh, I don't know if it's got the the uh, the, the oh yeah, and there's his kumite trophy. Okay, he's posing with a kumite trophy. trophy. Got yes. it. Yes, absolutely. Which uh, a reporter doesn't exist from the L.A. Times ended up doing a uh, doing some research, and he found out that this is a trophy that he had made for himself at a local trophy shop in North Hollywood, and the guy even got had the receipt uh, uh, for the money that Frank paid for. Now here's his book, okay, an American warrior's uncensored story. He was the CIA's finest covert. Operative. Oh yeah, here's here's the back of it. How right. I can't. Back. This is this is pure con man. Oh wow! This is I mean this is pure pure con man. Absolutely. Yeah. This is uh, a this is not even just telling stories. You've you've written a book of lies. You've right. taken pictures. You falsified stuff. I mean this is a pure. 
This is a sickness. This is an this illness. Is, this is catch me if you can. We no, caught him. Okay. Which, which, all right. So, all right. So and we have. Still won't admit it. So we established that he's an absolute crazy person. But right. out of this insanity comes an but, '80s action classic. Now, right. how did John Claude get involved with you and Bloodsport? Because essentially, I mean, if I remember correctly. I, because I, I'm John Claude. I followed John Claude very, very well when I was. He was just at that time. So, right. no retreat, no surrender. I think was his first appearance. Black Eagle, I remember, right. was right there, and then came Bloodsport. Okay, and, I'm going to give you the, I'm going to give you the backstory and the chronology here. Okay, okay. okay? Because there was no John Claude involved uh, early on. Basically, no. uh, Frank had been telling me all these stories forever, and one day we're driving in my car, uh, and um, uh, and he, he's telling me about the Kumite, and he says, well, we had a nickname for it, because it was very bloody, because it was no holes barred, there'd be blood all over the mat. So we actually, me and the other fighter, we called it Bloodsport. And like, Bloodsport? Whoa, is well, that that's... a great title for a movie? <laughs> he came and up with the name too. <laughs> you know what, Frank, um, come to think of it, all these stories you've been telling me about the Kumite and the article in Black Belt Magazine, that's a movie. That's a movie. You know, and we should sit down and write this. Um, and we never did. We did not sit down and write it, okay? But we talked about it. And uh, and so now I had a title, Bloodsport. Um, so um, many months later, um, I'm editing this short film that I made, which is a whole other story. But uh, I, I, I took one of the, there was one scene that I wrote for um, Tracers that was a bit too big to put on a stage. Right, right, So right. the director decided, uh, yeah, we're, we can't use this one. Well, I really liked the story. So later on, I decided, you know what, I'm going to make a short movie and base, use that story and some of the dialogue there. Yeah. So I made this little movie called Firefight, and um, in 16 millimeter, shot it at uh, Camp Pendleton. Mm -hmm. um, this is something I, I totally put together, and uh, actually got, and got fr Frank Dukes actually plays one of the characters in it because Frank saw himself as an actor. He thought he he thought he had the the, the, the chops, chops. movie star. Right. So you're um, so you're editing the short. I'm editing the short in some very low budget uh, post-production house in Hollywood. And next door to me, um, a guy named Mark DeSalle has got an editor working on one of his little films, which were porno films. Mark was producing porno films at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I got to talking with his editor and told him, yeah, I'm a writer. And this is a little movie that I wrote and directed. Um, and he tells me one day, hey, uh, my boss, Mark, wants to take you out to lunch and talk about a movie project that he wants to have written. So fine. So I meet Mark. We go to lunch nearby. And Mark um, has this theory about movies that everything runs in cycles. So, uh, you know, there's a cycle of science fiction movies. L lots of them get made, and nobody makes any of them. There's horror movies. Lots of them get made. Nobody makes any. Well, same is true for martial arts movies. And there haven't been any martial arts movies made lately. And so I want to do a martial arts movie. I want to put a martial arts movie together. Um, and the story he pitched to me was called Kickboxer. Okay. <laughs> so this is like the very early version of Kickboxer. 
you know, kick the story. Of, co- of course. Yeah, 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 of course. Of Kirk course. does not have a brother in the story that Mark first pitched me. Uh, but Tong, he, yeah, Tong, he defeats Tong Po in a fight back in the U.S. And Tong Po wants to get vengeance. Uh, so he goes, he sneaks into Kurt's house at night and throws a kick at Kurt. But Kurt either ducks or for some reason he doesn't get hit. But his mother comes walking behind him. <laughs> Tong Po kills. kicks his mother in the head Ooh. and kills his mother. That's, okay. a, that's a rough visual, even for the 80s. Yeah. Even, even yeah. for the 80s, that's a rough visual. Anyway, that, was Mark's, that was Mark's idea, kickboxer. Sure. And so I listen to this, and I think, um, um, okay, well, this is kind of lame, but I've got something much better. So I said, Mark, look, um, i got a better idea for a martial arts movie. It's called Bloodsport. Well, Bloodsport. Wow, is that a great title? So I tell him about, I tell him about Frank Dukes and the Kumite, and this, uh, this it's a true story based on this guy going, you know, uh, the first Westerner to participate in it and win, mm-hmm. and um, and the guy lives right here in L.A. If you'd like to meet him, I can set up a meeting, and we can talk about this further. So that's that was the next step. Basically, I introduced Frank Dukes to Mark DeSalle. <clears throat> Mark DeSalle's liking all this. And um, I think I, at this point, I had already been hired to write Rambo 3. So he knew I was writing Rambo 3. So that was, um, that was kind of a feather in my cap. And so he's thinking, well, if he's, this guy's working on Rambo 3, he must be a good writer. Um, anyways, Mark uh, makes a deal with both of us. And we sign contracts. And he hires me to write Bloodsport. And he... Um, makes another contract with Frank for the rights to his quote, true life, life story. story. Okay. And this is all memorialized on paper in contracts. Okay. And, um, uh, so I end up writing the script from Mark <clears throat> and, uh, Mark gets the script over to Canon films. It's a long, kind of a long story. Basically he got it to Canon. Uh, Canon was doing really good with, uh, karate movies at the time. They were doing those ninja movies. They were doing yeah. Chuck Norris movies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, well, here's another martial arts movie called Bloodsport. Great title. Based on a true story. That's pretty cool. We can use that in the advertising. So Canon ends up financing this film. or making a deal with Mark. And then um, we had no star. We had no actor. We, uh, I wrote the script at, for Mark. We had no actor in mind. We just knew this is a cool idea. It's a great title. It's you know based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now um, we had to find somebody to play this character, Frank Dukes, who would have been in his 20s at the time. And a number, I wouldn't say a number, there were not many names that you could plug into that role. Um, we had talked about, uh, like Chuck Norris's name was mentioned, but Chuck was... I think in his fifties at the time, right? Or fifties. He was too old to play this character. Um, and, uh, I think, uh, uh, Cannon was already working with Michael Dudikoff at the time, but Michael Dudikoff was not a martial artist. He's an actor, right? He, he was an actor. And they basically faked it with Michael Dudikoff. And, um, uh, and we were all thinking, you know, we need a real martial artist for this movie to, to, to make it believable. And then, um, there's the famous story about, uh, Jean-Claude. Apparently this is true. I've heard it 
repeated a number of times in exactly the same way. And from Jean-Claude himself, I'm assuming. From Jean-Claude and from Michel Kesey, his buddy, mm-hmm. uh, who was there with him. But Jean-Claude had gone to the Cannes Film Festival a, uh, a couple of years earlier, and he was basically going from office to office saying, hey, I'm Jean-Claude Van Damme, I'm going to be a big star, you should sign me. And uh, uh, Menachem was one of the people he, that he saw. And uh, so he's, he's, he and Michelle are driving down La Cienega Boulevard. <clears throat> and Jean-Claude says, hey, look, there's Menachem Golan. He was coming out of a restaurant. Do a quick U-turn. They pull up right in front of, Men- of Menachem. And Jean-Claude goes up to him and says, hey, Menachem, remember me, Jean-Claude Van Damme. And he does one of his kicks. Uh, basically, he used to do this to everybody. He would throw a kick at your face and miss your nose by two inches. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, he did that to Menachem. And Menachem just happened to be looking for an actor to for play Frank Dukes in Bloodsport. Um, and he, he gives Jean-Claude his card and says, you come to my office tomorrow. And they used to have an office on uh, uh, San Vicente and uh, Wilshire. And Jean-Claude goes there the next day, right. and uh, um, Menachem gives him the Bloodsport script. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the, rest is, the rest is history. The rest is history. Yeah, the rest well, is history. If I remember, if I remember uh, in my Jean-Claude lore, um, I remember seeing Jean-Claude in a little film called Breakin' as an extra in the right. background. And that's a canon film. That was a canon it's film. It's a if canon I'm not- film, but... Uh, but- he was just an extra. He was he just Menachem didn't know who the hell he was. Nobody right. did. He was just an extra. And all of a sudden, like you're watching this, like years later, you're watching Breaking, and you just go, "Is that, is that John Claude Van Damme dancing in the background?" And it okay. it was. So wait, so there's another movie we have to insert here yeah. because it just so happened that at the time all of this was going on, we're looking for an actor. Mm-hmm. No retreat, no surrender. Right. In L.A. And um, Mark uh, uh, calls me and Frank and says, hey, uh, uh, looks like we might be making this movie with uh, Canon. And there's this young actor that I want you guys to take a look at. His name is Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, And let me know what you think, okay? So Frank and I go to see No Retreat, No Surrender in uh, North Hollywood, I believe. And we're blown away. We yeah. thought he was fantastic. Oh, he he's the best part of that movie. No question. He, absolutely. No, no movie. question. No question. Right, right. So, um, uh, so we call Mark and, uh, you know, we give him a ringing endorsement. Like, yeah, this guy's perfect. And um, next thing we know, they're getting, uh, uh, they're getting a director and they're scouting Hong Kong. Um, they had a deal. Menachem had a deal with a Hong Kong producer named Charlie Wang mm-hmm. who had um, – a production company in Hong Kong. They had all the cameras, everything you needed. Yeah, yeah. And so they, basically, this is supposed to be a very low budget film. I think the budget was like 1.1 million. Jesus. And um, uh, so, uh, yeah, one thing led to another. And there he is. They got Newt, Newt Arnold was hired to direct it, and Newt was a, a second unit, not second unit director. He was a first AD. He's a very well known first AD. In fact, I believe he was the first AD on Blade Runner. And, a, and some other very famous movies, but he's never directed anything. And um, he had he, he had saved one of Canon's movies. They were having trouble with one of their movies. Um, uh, I, I guess they had to replace the director, so they ended up 
using Newt to be like the ghost director for this movie. And Menachem was kind of impressed with them. And he said, look, because you're doing such a good job for me, if you keep on doing, doing a good job, uh, I'm going to give you a movie to direct. So uh, they got Bloodsport and Menachem gives it to Newt Arnold. And, uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. history. <laughs> now, so Bloodsport, I remember, comes out. I don't remember seeing it in the theater. I think there was a theatrical for it. Well, I got a whole story for that. Okay. <laughs> because Menachem hated the movie. Now, the very first cut was really bad. Mm -hmm. All right, I saw the first cut with uh, Jean-Claude and Frank Dukes, and we were, we were depressed. Uh, uh, they had, um, I think, Carl Kress was the editor at the time. And, um, and he just didn't know how to cut a movie like mm -hmm. this. He was like an old-time old Hollywood guy, and, right, uh, right. Hollywood editor, and didn't know how to do the, the quick cuts. Really didn't, didn't get a movie like this at all. Um, so um, the movie was terrible. Menachem thought it was terrible. And somehow Menachem got convinced that they should bring another editor on. And uh, I can't remember the guy's name now, but they did bring on another editor who completely ripped it apart, put it back together again, and turned it into a uh, turned it into what a, it is. A, a, a classic, as they a say today. As a classic, as they say yeah. today. And the the, ver the first version that we saw did not have the music. This got some pretty cool music. It, pretty cool oh, songs. I love that soundtrack. I yeah. love that soundtrack. And so it had none of that. Um, and um, um, and suddenly it's a much better movie. Right. Uh, but Menachem was still, um, he was still remembering that first version. And he did not want to release this in theaters. And we're talking about like the mid 80s, like mm -hmm. everything got released in theaters back then. Mm -hmm. All right. You didn't go straight to VHS on anything unless it was a real stinker. And Menachem thought this was a real stinker. Um, and I'll tell you how I know this from firsthand experience. Mm -hmm. Because at the time, I was, um, I'd been writing a number of scripts for an actor named Leon Isaac Kennedy. Yeah. Do you remember Leon by any chance? I don't. He starred in a couple of black exploitation films called okay. Penitentiary. Okay. Um, and then Menachem, I think, produced Penitentiary 2. And uh, then he, he ended up doing another movie with Leon for Cannon uh, called Body and Soul. It was a remake of an old John Garfield movie. So um, Menachem knew, he knew Leon. And Leon co-starred in a Chuck Norris movie um, called uh, Lone Wolf McQuaid. Great movie. Okay? Great in the, you know Lone Wolf, of Leon was the black guy in Lone Wolf McQuaid. <laughs> Got it. And um, that movie did fairly well. And um, uh, Leon thought they should do a sequel, you know, because my character would come back in the sequel. Uh, so uh, I think Chuck wanted to do a sequel also, but um, uh, it, the sequel wasn't happening. So Leon had me write a script uh, that was going to be a sequel to Lone Wolf McQuaid, except we had a different title to it. And um, it was going to be very much like Lone Wolf McQuaid. It was going to be a, a, a white guy who was the lead. Mm -hmm. you know, Chuck Norris role, and Leon was the co-lead. Leon's character was the co-lead. So I wrote this script, and uh, Leon gets it to uh, Menachem and Cannon, and Menachem likes the script. Um, Leon said that uh, um, I was interested in directing, and Menachem was gonna, he was gonna let me direct the movie. In fact, because I made this little film, Firefight, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I blew up to 35 millimeter, it looked pretty impressive. It was mm -hmm. a little movie. So Menachem saw that, 
and um, decided he was going to give me a chance. So they were going to hire me to direct this. It was called Strikers Force. That was the name of the script. Mm-hmm. And um, we, 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 uh, Chuck Norris did not want to do it. So um, Leon, I had introduced Jean-Claude to Leon Isaac Kennedy. They hit it off. And Leon and I both thought, well, hey, uh, this guy Jean-Claude should be your, your co-lead in uh, Strikers Force. Um, and uh, Jean-Claude has got a three-picture deal with Canon Films. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the show. And you've got to deal with Canon Films. So Leon decides, I'm going to just take this straight to Menachem and tell him, let's do this movie. Canon, they wanted to do the movie. Mm-hmm. Menachem wanted to do the movie with me directing. And let's suggest to him that Jean-Claude Van Damme should be the co-lead. So we go, we go to his office and he says, uh, his term for Van Damme, he thought, the, he thought Bloodsport was terrible. He, tell, he basically told me this to, to my face. Uh, it's a terrible movie. I'm not going to embarrass myself by releasing it in theaters. We're going to go straight to video. Um, and well, what about Jean-Claude Van Damme? You got a three-picture deal with him. Van Damme? Van Damme is poison. He called him poison. <laughs> he, thought, he thought Jean-Claude was a terrible actor. Um, and he said, look, um, I want this movie to be successful. So I'm going to give you a real movie star. You're going to have a real movie star in the lead role. And that's Michael Dudikoff. Van Damme is poison. Michael Dudikoff is a movie star. So um, anyways, uh, um, I gave Jean-Claude the bad news, and he was very upset about this that. This is pre-release of, of Bloodsport. Correct. Pre-release. Um, yeah, nobody knew who the hell this Van Damme guy was. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, anyways, um, so I had a meeting with Michael Dudikoff about this project. He didn't like the script. Ended up going nowhere. Nowhere, sure. Uh, and um, somebody at 
at Canon. We had the, uh, the, the new editor's name was Michael J. Duffy, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Michael has ended up, Michael fixed some movies for Canon. They brought him in to fix movies that were, uh, that were a mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was like a, like a film doctor, basically. Mm-hmm. And he recut a few other films. So they brought him in to try and save Bloodsport. And he did. He saved Bloodsport big time. Um, and um, uh, somebody at Canon decided, you know what? Um, people are kind of liking the movie. Uh, we should maybe give it a chance. Uh, why don't we try releasing it just on the West Coast? Uh, you know, California, Oregon, and Washington. Let's give it a test a test run. I think they might have done 25 prints. Hmm. Uh, and um, so they tried that, and it did really well because the title threw people in, the poster, uh, based on a true story, the movie did well. And then they decided, well, okay, let's, let's roll it out nationwide. And they opened it nationwide. And it's funny, I made a bet with Menachem. Fortunately, he, fortunately for him, he didn't put any money down on it. But um, his big movie at the time, when we were having, when we had this meeting in his mm-hmm. office, was Missing in Action 3. Mm-hmm. Okay, Missing in Action 3, Chuck Norris. And they changed the title, so now it was Braddock, Missing right. in Action 3, like they did with Rambo. You know? Right, 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 right. First Blood, now it's Rambo, First Blood 2. So Menachem decided to use the same tactic. And he figured, okay, this... This this one's going to explode. This is going to do. This is going to do huge business. Um, and I told him to his face, okay, Menachem, if you release Bloodsport in theaters, it's going to do better than Missing in Action Three. Mm-hmm. And he laughed. He said, "You're you're dreaming, my friend." And those <laughs> were his words. You're dreaming. <laughs> okay. It's a so good impression they, of him, by the way. It's a very good impression. Uh, it's a good I, impression. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I knew Menachem well. I had many meetings with him. But I've, I've worked, worked with a number of Israeli producers, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. including, uh, Menachem's successor was really Avi Lerner. Mm-hmm. He's not as, <clears throat> as big and as theatrical. In fact, he's not big in theatrical at all. He's very low-key. But Menachem was very big theatrical, you know, mm-hmm. like the Zero Mustel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, uh, so they, they ended up releasing it nationwide, and it did really well. It was, I think it was Canon's highest grossing movie of that year. And we're not talking about a huge numbers, but this is back in the 80s. So, so if, I, if it made like five, six, seven million bucks, that's a huge... I think it was even more than that. Yeah, that's huge. More than that. So yeah. they were really impressed. And... Um, uh, then it really found it all. I mean, once it hit video, it was a perfect timing because when that video dropped, it was in the, uh-huh. I was talking, I think, with 86, 87, I think, somewhere right. around the world when it dropped because I couldn't keep it in the store. At the video store I was working, I worked at a mom and pop video store. I, there was just, we had to keep getting copies of it because people would rent it all the time. So people were like, what, what, what should we watch? We just like, go watch Bloodsport. Go watch Bloodsport. And it was a constant. So I know it found a massive audience. So it hit like, at the at the when when video VHS was starting to take off, Bloodsport shows up and it's just kind of like when Terminator showed up with right. HBO and it, right. there was just timing situations that just worked out and it, it exploded. Um, it even did well in the theaters because yeah, uh, I'll give you a little anecdote. Um, Jean Claude was living in this apartment on Riverside Drive mm-hmm. at the time. <clears throat> I went there with him many times, and he had an answering machine. You know, we had answering machines back then. <laughs> And um, 
it would beep once for every call that he had missed. Okay, so, uh, you know, we'd come back, we'd uh, hear, you know, beep, beep. Okay, oh, I missed two calls. I'll listen to him. We come back after Bloodsport had opened in theaters. Right. We come back to the apartment, and there's, it had a, there was a limit of 50 messages. Right. Beep 50 times, and then basically reset itself. There were 50 messages on his answering machine. People were calling him from all over the country, all over the world, to congratulate him because of it. It did make it did make kind of a splash when it first opened in mm -hmm. theaters. Mm -hmm. um, I remember at the time watching. I was watching something on TV. Um, somebody was following following the Lakers around. It was like a small group of LA mm -hmm. Lakers, and um, they're walking by a movie theater. Uh, hey man, let's go see a movie. What do you want to see? Let's check out Bloodsport. Okay, they they see the title Bloodsport, and they went they went to see the uh, Bloodsport. The people were the, the the poster was pretty cool. I remember the poster. It's yeah, awesome poster. You'll probably be able to do a. You do a I'll visual. put a, yeah. I'll put the I'll put poster, a visual up. Yeah, the poster yeah. was great. Um, the uh, the post and they we had newspaper ads and everything. Um, there actually was a. Um, we actually had a little premiere, on Hollywood Boulevard. That John Claude went to, and Forrest Whitaker was there too. Forrest That's Whitaker right. I forgot. Yeah, for, of course, Forrest. Yes, the yeah, Oscar, was, Oscar, another Oscar winner that worked yeah, in a project. He was kind of nobody at the time. Yeah. And um, and I remember seeing him at the theater and going up to him, "Hey, Forrest, you're terrific in the movie. I'm the writer, by the way." And we were talking for a little while. Um, but they had a premiere, and I have photographs of this, which I could send you. You probably want to want to put them up on the we'll screen. Put, sure, sure. But it was. Uh, uh, they they ran ads in the newspapers mm -hmm. that um, Jean Claude Van Damme will be there in person, you know, based on a true story, starring uh, uh, world kickboxing champion Jean Claude Van Damme, and there was a big crowd. I have photographs of this. A big crowd showed up for the movie, and they gave away posters. Amazing. So the first Fifty people. I have photos of him signing the posters, um, but. People were just, they were attracted by the poster that was in right. the newspapers. Mm -hmm. And it opened at, I think, two theaters. And one was on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah, the Chinese we, probably. Yeah. We had a crowd. We had a crowd. That theater was packed. So uh, it's, it's, so, it's so remarkable, the whole story of Bloodsport, how that came about. And then that basically launches Jean-Claude into the stratosphere. But before we, we, we go into, because um, we might want to talk a little bit about Cyborg and your involvement with that and, and Rambo, there's a story that Boaz, uh, Boaz Yankin, who's on my other show, uh, Bulletproof Screenwriting. Yakin, by the way. Yakin, I'm sorry, Yakin, sorry. Yakin, <laughs> he, he told me to say that. Boaz, please forgive me. Uh, Boaz Yakin, um, he was a guest on my other show. Um, he told me the story of how you guys have some sort of history with Mr. Tarantino. How did you, were you involved in that? Yeah. yeah. So, fact, I'm the one who introduced Quentin to <laughs> Scott Spiegel, who then right. introduced him to Lawrence Bender. Right. You see the movie Lionheart, okay? Yeah, um, yeah. Because this. Lawrence is Lawrence is in Lionheart. Yeah, 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 both of them are. We had a whole circle of friends at the time. Right, right. It included Sam Raimi, and Sam was at that first screening of uh, Bloodsport. By the way, he, see, Sam ended up doing uh, a, at least a couple of movies with Jean Claude. They did that. Uh, he was involved with Time Cop and Hard Target. 
Uh, but, Universal, uh, sure, I, yeah, yeah. I introduced Jean Claude to Sam Raimi, and Sam was immediately impressed with him. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we had a whole circle of friends at the time, um, uh, you know, which included Sam and Bruce Campbell and you know some of these Detroit guys, and then there were people I met in, in LA, like Boaz. I, I, I met Boaz through a completely different source, um, and we all used to used to hang out together. Um, so um, I was prepping Lionheart at Imperial Entertainment, mm -hmm. and Quentin, who worked in video stores just like you many years ago, yes, Quentin was hired by Imperial to call video stores all over the country to sell them their product to basically get them to buy you know like hey come on you want five copies of ninja versus zombie don't you but and that, and that, and, and that was the thing for, for people not don't understand i understand it because i worked at a video store but mm -hmm. back then you know there was hustlers on the phone trying to get you to buy more copies and this is before sell through like because right. before 1995 movies they were still like at 79 or 99 dollars a tape or something like that or 79 dollars a that tape was expensive yeah so, so you were like trying to get them you you were trying to get my mom and pop or not my personal mom and pop but yeah. my, the owner of my video store to purchase well, that not was, that was not Quentin just, Tarantino <laughs> so he was a telemarketer <laughs> so Quentin Tarantino was a telemarketer at that time yeah. essentially yeah. yeah and um um and my little works, my, my workspace was right across from where Quentin's workspace was. <laughs> and um, Quentin comes up to me one day and you know, just bubbling with enthusiasm. He's always bubbling with enthusiasm. Oh, and, yeah. Hey, you're Sheldon Lenich. You, you co-wrote Thou Shalt Not Kill Except. Right. Uh, yeah. It wasn't joking, though. I mean, he was, it was like. He knew it. He knew it. It was like, hey, you, you co-wrote Citizen Kane, didn't you? Uh, anyways, he was. He was really jazzed about that. So we talked a little bit, and I realized that he was um, he was just a, 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 a fount of trivia. Mm -hmm. uh, he just knew all this trivia about every movie ever made. And, um, and my buddy Scott Spiegel is pretty much the same. Uh, Scott, uh, Scott actually co-wrote a movie with uh, Boaz. They co-wrote uh, The Rookie. Mm -hmm. And Scott... Uh, uh, co-wrote uh, Evil Dead 2. He's, he's basically one of the Detroit guys. He used to hang out with Sam and Bruce and all those guys. Um, and so I tell Quentin, um, you know what? You really need to meet a friend of mine, uh, Scott Spiegel. He says, whoa, Scott Spiegel! And starts rattling off Scott Spiegel's credits like, whoa, Evil Dead 2, Scott Spiegel! Uh, he was really excited, so I, I gave him Scott's phone number and the two of them, they hit it off uh, mm -hmm. right away. And Scotty had been directing um, a low-budget movie that Lawrence Bender was producing at the time called right. Intruder. Yes, yes. Which Sam Raimi was in playing the butcher in this, in this grocery store. <laughs> and um, so that's how, uh, that's how he met Lawrence. And Lawrence was a friend of mine at the time, too, because I also I cast Lawrence and Scotty in Lionheart. Uh, Lawrence has the... Uh, Lawrence has a very memorable role. He's this heckler at one of the fights. I remember. He's in the trailer. He's in the trailer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I've been and I've been auditioning actors to play, uh, you know, the New York heckler. Mm -hmm. and I just couldn't find anybody who uh, I was really happy with. Right. And I thought, you know what, Lawrence, uh, Lawrence would be perfect for playing this this guy. Um, so um, I gave him a call. 
at the time he was living in some some small apartment over in uh, uh, like the Miracle Mile area, and um, you know, kind of living paycheck to paycheck. So uh, uh, yeah, he's more than happy. He rushes down to do an audition, does an audition, and uh, I cast him in the movie, and um, he was doing such a good job of heckling Jean Claude uh, when we were shooting that. With cameras rolling, Jean-Claude walks over to him. And Lawrence, you know, he's a trained actor. So he stayed in the moment. Jean-Claude stayed in the moment. And Jean-Claude walks over and grabs Lawrence by his shirt. Yanks him and says, you and me, right now. And uh, Lawrence Lawrence did not break character. He stayed with it. And then uh, uh, Harrison uh, Page comes in and separates the two of them. No, 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 man, you don't want to do that. Uh, so uh, that was Lawrence's role in the film. And, um, uh, and yeah, like you said, they even used it in the trailer. It was a really good little moment. Mm-hmm. So I was hanging out with these guys at the time. And, um, um, and a lot of them have moved on to become some pretty prominent names in the business. They've done okay. They've done okay for themselves. They've done okay. So, that's, so, so Quinn is next to you, telemarketing. You introduce him to Scott. Scott eventually introduced him to Lauren Bender. And then the rest is, is history as far as Quentin, as Lawrence and, and Quentin go. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, basically, uh, Quentin showed uh, Lawrence his uh, script. Uh, yeah, for Reservoir. Reservoir for Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, for Reservoir. Actually, Lawrence, I, I told you about this project Strikers Force. That, yeah. Uh, I was going to do a canon. So Lawrence was going to produce that. Lawrence, he even did, I even have a budget that he put together for it. So, like, yeah, Lawrence and I, uh, uh, we, you know, we were good buddies at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he certainly got on to do uh, some pretty damn amazing uh, projects. He, he did okay for himself. Bo- both, yeah. of them, both of them did okay. It's okay. Yeah. But it's so fascinating to listen to the stories because I've, 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 I mean, I've studied Quentin like every other filmmaker of my generation and every generation studies like his lore and how he comes to, right. came up and everything. I have never heard that story. I have never heard the story where he was a telemarketer, you know, upselling VHS's copies to, to, to video stores around the country. Right. Like, right. I never heard that story in all the things really? I've heard or read about I, I him. Had, I have told it to a, a few people and I've written about it a few times. I'm sure, I'm sure it's out there. I just yeah. never heard about it. Okay. So it was, it's, it's fairly fascinating, and I heard about a new whole intruder thing and, and Lawrence Bender and how that combination and, and Quentin didn't want to even make Reservoir for a million dollars. Like I'm going to just go do it for fifty or sixty thousand or something. Oh, actually, like yeah, there was um, there was a very low budget producer named David Pryor mm-hmm. at the time. Um, uh, wait, there was David, and he had a brother, and the brother was a pre. A, I forgot the name of their company, but it was like ultra, ultra low budget. Um, and um, uh, and the brother, the one who ran the company, uh, I'd have to look look up his name now, but he was actually, he was a, previously had been a dancer, and he was one of the Jets in West Side Story, in the movie West Side Story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, that's right. When you're a Jet, you're a Jet. All- he was one of them. Yeah, when you're a Jet, so, you're a Jet. Um, yeah. uh, so he... He wanted to make a very low-budget movie with me at the time uh, because of the Rambo 3 connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the budget was ridiculous, you know, like $50,000. And I told him, well, look, I don't think I could do this. But uh, he, he says, do you have any friends that have got scripts that we could make, something uh, we can do on a low budget uh, in one location? <laughs> well, like this friend named Quentin Tarantino, 
Um, and he's got this script called Reservoir Dogs. It all takes place in one location. Uh, well, give me his number. Let me call him. So he, he, he does call Quentin. Quentin comes in. I think Quentin and Lawrence maybe both came in to meet with him. And he said, uh, yeah, we want to, we'll do this movie. We'll do Reservoir Dogs. Uh, the, your budget's going to be $50,000. And fortunately, they turned that down. Uh, and uh, they actually uh, they were actually getting ready to shoot uh, Reservoir Dogs on their own in Super 8. Uh, that would have been an interesting film. <laughs> well, I, I went over to Lawrence's apartment and Quentin and Lawrence are both there and they're, they're crunching numbers. They're putting together a budget. Um, and uh, they said, uh, yeah, we're going to, we're going to shoot Reservoir Dogs one way or another. And right now we're putting together the Super 8 budget. They're going to shoot it in Super 8 for like, I don't know, they're, uh, for like $50,000 or something. Because uh, that's right, Quentin had gotten a bump uh, by selling uh, True Romance, right. to uh, Sammy Hadida. Mm -hmm. And um, um, so now he had like $50,000 that was burning a hole in his pocket. <laughs> and he said, I'm going to use that 50 Hey, Lawrence, we're going to make Reservoir Dogs it's super great with that $50,000. I'm going to put it all into the movie. Um, so uh, I don't know if you heard that one before. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that one. And then Lawrence was like, okay. "Yeah," and Lawrence is like, "Hey, listen, just give give me like a month to go find some money." And he right, did. he did, yes, right. And then it got Harvey involved, and as the rest they say is, is history. Fascinating, fascinating little Prior side note. Prior to Harvey, though, they mm -hmm. got um, um, they got uh, um, it was I think it was called Live Entertainment. Anyway, yeah, it was it was Live Entertainment. Yeah, live. And I believe a woman named Ruth Vitale was running it at the time. And um, the reason that they got involved was because Lawrence got Harvey Keitel interested. Uh, Lawrence knew some, uh, an editor who was also a director. I forgot the guy. I'm blanking on his name right now. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But this guy knew Harvey Keitel. Anyway, he read Lawrence's, he read Quentin's script and said, uh, let me get this to my buddy, Harvey Keitel. I, I think he might want to play one of the roles in this. And uh, sure enough, Harvey liked it. He wanted to play, I guess, his character was, in the movie was Mr. White, I believe. Yeah, it was, yes. Okay, so basically he said, you know, I like this. I'd love to play Mr. White. And so now they've got Harvey Keitel wanting to be in the movie. So, um, uh, so basically, uh, I think it was, I think Ruth Vitale was an executive at Live at the time. I think Live spun, they spun off from Carol Co. Or I think so. It's some, it was something like that because I remember yeah. the again video store icon. So I remember the, the VHS. Did, Live did the video releases for Carol Co. Correct, because they did Terminator Two and a couple other right. ones around that around that time. So, um, anyways. Um, now, Lawrence and Quentin had Harvey Keitel wanting to be in a movie. So suddenly they're realizing, okay, we got, we got something we can release on video here because Harvey Keitel has got his name above the title. So we got a big star. We got Harvey Keitel. Um, and then one thing led to another, and then they ended up getting enough money to, to, to shoot. Um, I think the budget was about a million dollars. Yeah, something like that. Um, 
and um, and they discovered all these people like Steve Buscemi, Michael uh, Madsen, Michael Madsen, Tim Roth. Yeah, but I think Lawrence knew Virginia Madsen. Oh, okay. My sister, and that's and I, I think she's the one that said, "Hey, can you put my brother Michael on this thing?" <laughs> okay. Chris Chris Penn, like yeah, I mean, the yeah, it's I, I, yeah, it was it was a remarkable remarkable. But thank you for that little side note on on your your connection with Mr. Tarantino because that that I I wanted to hear it from your mouth because Boaz told me a little bit about it, but you you elaborated a bit more. So thank right, you for right. that. Yeah, yeah, I'm the. I'm, I'm the hookup guy. Okay? <laughs> I've actually hooked up a lot of people. Good for you. That's awesome. But look, hey, you know, that's what it's all. I always try to, you know, when I when I have, uh, if I have the ability to help somebody, I try to, uh, if I can, if I can at all. Um, now, you wrote uh, you wrote Rambo 3 um, with Sly. And uh, right. I just got to, you know, and I have Sly on my shirt here uh, from First Blood. Uh, right, right. Got to get to that. Yeah, from First Blood, obviously. Um, and First Blood is a masterpiece, and then Rambo Two was a—I mean, it was a sensation. Was I love a, Rambo Two. Sensation, written, uh, co-written by a uh, Mr. Jimmy Cameron uh, <laughs> at the time. Uh, this is pre—I think this is pre-Aliens, after Terminator, but yeah. it was pre-Aliens for that yeah. when he wrote. So Terminator—I mean, uh, Rambo Two was amazing. So you're now tasked to write a sequel to an extremely popular film, which is Rambo Three. What is it like work? Because I mean, at that point. You know, Sly, Sly. Like, he's at the height of his power at that point. He was, a, he was the number one star. In, in the, the world. world. In the world, yeah. He was the guy yeah. in the world. Um, and so at the height of his power, and you're, you're tasked to work with him. What was that experience right writing Rambo 3 with him? Well, let me tell you how I got the gig, first mm-hmm. of all. Um, I told you about my script, Firebase. My Vietnam-based Yeah. Uh, a version of uh, um, Zulu. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Stallone was looking for somebody to write Rambo 3 with him. So he put the word out to agents. My agent sends him Firebase. He loved Firebase. Mm. Um, calls me in, and um, he wanted to actually make Firebase. So he's another guy that wanted to make Firebase. So I'm going to make this movie one of these days. Uh, <laughs> now's not the time. <clears throat> Uh, Vietnam still uh, kind of a taboo subject, but uh, I'm going to make this thing. Uh, and he would have been perfect in it, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, so based upon that and the fact that I was also uh, a Vietnam veteran, like the real deal. Mm-hmm. Um, not Frank so, Duke style, but like a real deal. <laughs> like, like the real deal. Yeah, yeah. It's not, actually got a DD-214 that says, you know, serve in Vietnam from this state to this state. Right. Um so he thought that that would be a good qualification for a co-writer for a Rambo film. And uh, uh, it turns out that it was. Um, so um, I, I did my research on uh, Afghanistan and the war over there. Actually, I used to read, there was a magazine called Soldier of Fortune at the time mm-hmm. that <clears throat> was constantly doing articles about Afghanistan and you know, uh, uh, the CIA and Afghanistan. This stuff was pretty much under the radar with the, well, what we'll call the mainstream media. That's mm-hmm. the new term now. Mm-hmm. You didn't read much about it, but Soldier of Fortune was all over it. Um, and they were doing interviews with actual uh, Mujahideen. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, they had a lot of the background information that I needed to write this thing. And um, uh, another thing, my first meeting with Stallone, 
we were both on the same page as far as where Rambo 3 was supposed to take place. Uh, okay, Rambo 2, Southeast Asia. Rambo 3, well, what's, what's going on in the world right now that Rambo would want to get involved with? Or that Rambo, what, where, where is there a conflict with uh, Americans and Russians? Because mm-hmm. Russians were also the bad, guy in, bad guys in Rambo 2. So Americans versus Russians, a foreign country, war zone. Perfect. Afghanistan was the only thing that made any kind of sense at all. Mm-hmm. And Stallone and I both had the exact same idea. We both uh, wanted, wanted it to take place in Afghanistan. <clears throat> and the idea was um, that <clears throat> Troutman goes in first. Now, here's where Stallone and I differed. And, uh, I, and I gave him my perspective on it, and he agreed with me. Uh, so he, he, you know, he, uh, uh, look, these big action stars like Stallone, they got an ego, but Stallone's ego is not so big that he would reject a good idea. And um, his first notion was, uh, so Troutman is going on a mission, because the CIA did used to send Americans over there to sell uh, Stinger missiles. Mm-hmm. Stinger was a ground-to-air missile that could shoot down a helicopter. So, uh, so uh, Troutman's going over there. And, um, and basically, the idea was that Rambo goes to Afghanistan as well, somehow connected to Troutman. But Stallone's idea was, when Troutman comes to him and says, hey, I'm going to Afghanistan, Johnny, would you come, come and help me? Well, let me just go get my gear. So basically, Rambo's on, he's just on board from the, mm-hmm. from the get-go. And I felt that sounds very wrong to me because mm-hmm. Rambo is the baddest badass in the world. Obviously. Uh, but he's seen too much, too much war, too much death, too much destruction. <laughs> he's, he's done with that shit. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to go to a war zone. He doesn't want to be, well, he doesn't want to kill anybody else. It has right? to be the reluctant, it has to be the reluctant hero. You have to. Perfect. Right. And that's, that's one thing that's so appealing about the Rambo character is that he's the baddest motherfucker in the world, but doesn't want to get involved, doesn't want to fight. Because he's seen too much already. He's he's done too much. Um, And to use an expression that we used a lot back in the 80s, until he was pushed too Too far. (laughs) In in a world where water is wet and ice is cold. (laughs) (laughs) That line was used so much in every 80s like absolutely until he was pushed too far and for rambo three yeah he doesn't he doesn't want to go he wants to stay in his monastery in thailand right. um and um, too far. uh yeah he's pursuing the peaceful path <laughs> until he was pushed too, too far, far. <laughs> so troutman goes and troutman gets captured and now rambo is feeling guilty okay because troutman asked him for help didn't he didn't him. go. And he has right? to, he's pulled it because of his his wimpy reasoning. Like, uh, uh, no, I'm uh, uh, my my war is over, mm-hmm. uh, Sam. I can't go with you. Uh, I've had enough of this shit. So now he's guilty. All right. Now his buddy Troutman, his mentor Troutman, he's everything. He's been captured by the evil empire in Afghanistan, and the CIA is not going to send anybody in to rescue him. They can't, you know, because of politics. Um, so, um, uh, the CIA guy, uh, Kurtwood Smith is the guy, uh, comes to Rambo and says, Hey, uh, uh, 
we just want you to know, we, we know where Troutman is, um, but we can't do anything about it. Uh, we're just letting you know in case you want to go rescue your buddy. So that's that became the basis for the story. Very, very cool. And uh, and then when I mean, working with someone like Sly must have been, you know, wonderful. And it, the movie came out, I remember when the movie came out, it, was a, if it, was, it wasn't as big of a hit as uh, First Blood 2, well, but it did, it did business. It, it took, it, it, the gestation period was way too long. Between because, the two movies. Be, um, no, just from the time that Stallone decided he wanted to do Rambo 3 yeah. and Afghanistan until the movie came out. Uh, because there were a lot of roadblocks along the way. Sly was one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he started becoming nervous about Afghanistan because it was, now it started, it started uh, uh, going into the news cycle every day. People were hearing about Afghanistan. Um, there are negative things being said about Americans getting involved, uh, about uh, right, the CIA right. giving Stinger missiles to the, uh, to the Mujahideen. Um, and it's, it started sounding like a hot potato to him. And he decided to back off. There was another storyline we came up with that took place in Siberia, mm -hmm. okay, of all places. Um, an American pilot gets shot down in Siberia. Rambo goes to rescue him. He crosses the Bering Strait, and there's Russians that are after this guy. He hasn't been captured yet, but he's shot down. So there's Russian bad guys again. Rambo has to fight off the Russian bad guys, gets him to safety. Um, and it was kind of kind of based on um, a, a book, um, I forgot who wrote it now. Uh, I think it might have been Louis L'Amour. Mm -hmm. It's called Last of the Breed. And Last of the Breed was basically the same, same kind of story. Um, so, um, so then they changed, uh, so I, I, I wrote, I, I'm pretty sure I wrote a few treatments for that one. Mm -hmm. But now we're talking about, you know, snow and ice in Siberia. Um, and, um, then they got. Um, then he went back to Afghanistan. Then we got. They got Russell Mulcahy hired to uh, direct the movie, and they sent poor Russell all over the world. And um, uh, and I, I'm not making this up. Okay, my first suggestion is Stallone when they were talking about where they're going to shoot this thing. Where you know, where can we do Afghanistan? I said, what about Israel? Because I had been to Israel before. Um, uh, I was cool. hired by. By, by Canon to to do a rewrite on, uh, uh, it was one of the um, Delta Force movies. Right, right. Yeah, Delta Force 2. I was hired to do a rewrite on that. Um, so I've been to Israel. I've been shown all around. And I told Sly, I think Israel would be a perfect place to shoot this movie. And he said, I ain't going to know Israel. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> because there's, you know, there's, you know. It's not, it's not, it's, it's, it's not the, it's not the, uh, the best vacation spot, let's just say. Right. Actually, it is a very good. Vacation. I, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Yeah, but especially it, those years. Huh? Especially in those years. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're still. Well, there were there were wars going on at the time. Like when I was over there working on the Chuck Norris movie, I, I'd hear, I'd see planes flying north towards Lebanon. I'd hear explosions. Okay, so there was shit going on. But Sly didn't want to go. Uh, he was nervous about it, and. Um, they sent poor Russell Mulcahy all over the world. Um, they they even had him looking in Canada, like some of the <clears throat> some of the middle provinces in Canada, uh, 
still, I think there's good production deals there. Too they sure. had him going to. I know he went. So to where did Morocco. you guys finally shoot? Where did they finally shoot? Israel. Oh, they did shoot Israel. I basically came back to my original idea, which was Israel. Israel would be perfect. They have a film industry there. They have technicians. Uh, sure. And they've got the thing about Israel is they've got all this captured Soviet equipment. They've got all the so they've got Soviet tanks. Right. They've got Soviet armored oh, personnel wow. characters because uh, because the Soviets had been supplying all the Arab countries and they had these wars and uh, the Israelis won the wars and then they'd have the spoils of war. So they had all this shit laying around. Um, Beautiful. In addition to um, the only thing that Israel didn't have was the high mountains. But not every part of Afghanistan is high mountains. It's a deserty part. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so but, it, it all worked. It all worked out. It now, all out now, so I know we, I, you know if I go into every every movie in your in your filmography, we'll need at least twenty hours for this podcast. We will, yeah, at least twenty hours. So because I, I mean Lionheart and Cy, and your your work on Cyborg and just working with the Cannon Boys in general, but I, I Legioneer and and all the into the order and things like that. But uh, you know to kind of wrap this up, I just want to. You had such an impact on Jean Claude's career, and Jean Claude had a, a major impact on your career. You guys Absolutely. are very, very symbi symbiotic relationship. Yeah. Um, and you did how? How many did you finally do with Jean Claude? Like what? Well, I directed four. Four directed, but you worked on. I from what I saw, like well, either polishes. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe a dozen. Right. I mean, Jean Claude always had you in his back pocket, working with him in one way, shape, or form. Um, right. as a, as a co-writer or, or a polisher, script doctor and things. So, you know, what, how is that relationship? I mean, I, cause I've, it's, it's very similar to, you know, Scorsese and De Niro in a sense, because they, they both came up. I mean, people have made that comparison. Uh, constantly, obviously constantly. Very flattered. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just like it, but a bit of slight bit different, less kicking, less kicking on the Scorsese side. Um, so, but that, but you've had this kind of really symbiotic relationship with a, a star, and you were there literally at the very beginning when he was kicking guys on the street to get attention, right? <laughs> or mm -hmm. close to kicking guys in the street. So how how have you worked? How was it working with him on things like Lionheart and Double Impact? And and you working in the? I mean, Lionheart was a studio project, if I remember right. It was a uh, was in a Universal. Uh, no, Colum it was Columbia. Columbia, I'm sorry, it was Columbia, right? right. But it, these are, you know, you you you've left the the canon world and started playing in the big leagues when when John Claude started going into. I remember double. I remember going to the theater to mm. see Lionheart and Double Impact. I remember I remember Double Impact perfectly. I was on a date. We were in the back row. We were supposed to, we were doing other things that other than watching your film. But I always had an eye on the on the screen, sir. And uh, <laughs> and it was it was amazing. So how was it working with him and, and, and kind of growing together as, as two artists? Right. Well, now we're getting into um, hours and hours of discussion. So okay. let, let, let's let's wrap it into a 10 or 15 minute conversation. And then right, we'll right, wrap because right. I because I literally I know you probably have to go to the bathroom. I know I do. So let's wrap it up. Wrap it up. We can come back to this uh, another time. No, no, but, no. But I would love to. I would love to hear that. I would love to hear the answer to that. Um, well, it changed with, with, over 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 the course of years. Um, we had a um, um, a much stronger relationship at first, and then we had people trying to get in between us. Once he started becoming really famous and popular, we had try, people trying to pry us apart. Uh, uh, you know, people bad mouthing me, 
so that um, they could get their client working with Jean-Claude instead of me working with him all the time. But Jean-Claude would always keep coming back, coming back to me because there was a certain comfort level. Now, basically, and where that comfort level stemmed from was the fact that I always believed in him. From the moment I met him, I believed this guy could be a movie star, but this guy can also be a good actor. So I was the first one to really take him seriously as an actor and actually give him dialogue, to actually give him emotions to express and to not just be uh, a, a kicking and punching machine, to not just be a karate guy. Because at the time when I first got to know him, uh, people just saw him as a karate guy. You know, he was basically um, uh, in, you know, Chuck Norris land, you know, and Chuck, yeah. Chuck Chuck's a pretty big star in his own right, but right. Chuck, no, nobody would ever put Chuck Norris in something like Lionheart. Okay, really? got to show his emotion. Got to show his soft, caring, emotional side. Right. Uh, uh, and um, uh, like Double Impact would not have been a Chuck Norris movie. Legionnaire, uh, Legionnaire would. Legionnaire, right? Legionnaire would not have been a Chuck Norris movie. Right. Um, and um, you know, Michael Dudikoff was a bit more of a like. A, a more sensitive, uh, 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 like an actor. He started out being an actor, but Michael Dudikoff couldn't do the action stuff. He couldn't fight. He's not a fighter. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, uh, so I saw that in John Claude, and he's he could see that I was trying to um, br bring him out as an actor, not just a karate guy, not just a um, uh, okay. Here's like two lines of dialogue, and now get out there and beat the shit out of ten people. Okay. Right, right. That's not how I was approaching it. And uh, uh, so we kind of bonded over that, over the fact that I believed in him and he believed in me. Uh, and uh, like I said, uh, along the way, people started getting jealous of this relationship and were wondering why, you know, why did I have his ear and they couldn't get his ear? Why was he listening to me and not listening to them? Um, so that um, um, that hurt things to a degree. But uh I still managed to make to direct four movies of his, and we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show, and work with him on do and a dozen uh, right, projects. Right, write a lot of stuff. And you guys, are you guys still friends? Do you guys still talk? Yeah. 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 I mean, he's he's. I mean, when I when I, when I saw JCVD come out, I, I thought that was like amazing on his part and absolutely the acting that he i mean he was he people were like wait a minute john claude's a really good actor he is he's just never given the opportunity because uh, other than like that's why i think that's why lionheart holds so well because it just there's there's some there's a there's an emotion it's not just a bunch of kicking and right and right yeah. it, there's something there there's, that, there's real characters i think harrison page helped a lot too right uh, the, the black guy that was in it with him. Yes, he was wonderful. He was, he was wonderful. wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But um, but yeah, that was those those must have been great times. And like I mean, seriously, I know I know we could talk about canon and all the other stuff that that you've gone through. I mean, when's your bi when's your biography coming out, Sheldon? I mean, seriously, it's fun. You know, um, I'm just in the midst of starting to talk to people about that right you now. So should write one. I've had a few friends that have that have told me I should um, I should write a uh, biography or autobiography. Yeah. And I've only started taking it seriously just in the last few weeks. 
Uh, like just yesterday, yeah. I found out that uh, there's a whole book on Sam Furstenberg. Mm-hmm. You know who Sam Furstenberg? I don't. The name sounds familiar, but who is he? He just he directed some ninja movies for Canon. Right. He was basically sort of an in-house. Right, right. You're saying that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never branched out to other studios, other kinds of movies, just ninja movies for for Canon. Michael Dudikoff movies. There's a whole damn book uh, about the guy. Um, and uh, I just I just saw this yesterday here. Uh, I don't know if you can see this, but it's like yeah, stories from the trenches. Yeah. But wait a second. Somebody put out a whole book. I think it's, I, I don't know if it's if how much it's written. It might be more like a scrapbook. Uh, I'm, t- I'm I'm telling you, you you're sitting you're sitting on a pile of gold, Sheldon. You, should, you absolutely need to write your own biography. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, filmmakers out there. The guy, oh god, what's his name? He's called they call the book True Indie. Uh, he did Boba uh, Boba Cohep with with Bruce Campbell. Oh and, right, 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 right. The guy who directed that. Uh, he did a couple of like movie with the flying. Yeah, oh uh, yeah, Phantasm. He did uh, Phantasm. Yeah, and all of those. He wrote a whole book about his experiences in the indie world and doing those movies. I, I mean, you, Jesus, shall I mean, look at your. I mean, look what you've done in your in your career. You should absolutely do that. Right. Well, I touched a lot. I think I touched a lot of bases. I wasn't yeah. just like the you know the, the Cannon guy or the Van Damme guy. You know, right. I worked with Stallone. I worked with you know with Chuck Norris, uh, um, Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, uh, Joaquin, <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix. I didn't really work with. Him. I know. I'm joking. You I'm know, joking. But, but yeah. But even but, so, yeah, he touches my biography. Sure. Uh, um, but um, uh, but I did work on some big movies uh, yeah. and movies that are still uh, you know people still love these movies. They still I, I get residuals, so I know people are watching this stuff. Okay. Right, so you get those little little checks from Lionheart still and Double Impact still. Someone's watching them. <laughs> uh, they're not little checks either. That's you know? great. That's yeah. th- that's awesome. Yeah, it's that's... and every time I do a, a, an interview yeah. um, that gets uh, uh, you know that gets put on YouTube or wherever, sure, sure, sure. Um, I get a bump in residuals because it, uh, people realize that I should I should check out Double Impact. I've never seen it uh, and. Uh, um, and, and so it, it ends up helping, um, but uh, uh, beyond the financial, because who knows how much money I can make from a book? I don't really think I'm not really thinking about that. Sure, people are just telling me you've got this interesting story to tell. Why aren't you telling it? You're a storyteller. Why wouldn't you? Uh, right, I mean, right. I even wrote a book about an experience of me making a movie for the mafia, twenty million dollar movie for the mafia when I was twenty six, and that I sold. I'm selling that, and it's been a bestseller. So. If I can write a book about a short year of my life as a filmmaker, I'm, I promise you, you could sell a book about your career. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I've been reading a few biographies lately just to um, uh, just to get an idea of how these things are done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Oliver Stone wrote one, which yeah. is really good, really well written. Um, and um, um, I'll take a look at the. I, I just ordered the Sam Furstenberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, uh, Oliver uh, was on the show talking about his book, and uh, and, and it's yeah, I mean that book. I read, I read that book. It's he's like you're sitting there going listening, and his career it stops at Platoon, so that book stops at Platoon. He's like he still has an obscene amount of career left. He's like I'm writing the second part next, but right, right. but it's so detailed about Scarface and Conan and all this stuff, and you have those kind of stories, but in your filmography of Bloodsport and Rambo and. and, 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 and 
And I've got a year in Vietnam too. There's like, there's a little bit of that as well. I mean, you right. are arguably one of the most interesting filmmakers I've ever spoken to. So it's been it's been a, it's been really great. I want to ask you a few questions. I ask all my guests, or like rapid fire. Uh, okay. What advice would you give a filmmaker trying to break into the business today? Make a movie. It's a lot cheaper now than it was when you started out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it cost me um, a Firefight, which was shot in sixteen millimeter. Um, it uh, cost me about $25,000 to make. Now, we're talking $25,000 in the yeah. 80s, okay? That's so that a- would be a lot more now. And we shot on, you know, we shot on film. I blew it up to 35 millimeter. But it got me my first few directing gigs. There wasn't, it wasn't just with Menachem. Um, that's how I ended up directing Lionheart also, because Jean-Claude wanted me to direct Lionheart. The producer, Sunil Shah, was very nervous. They had no feature films that I had directed. We show him uh, Firefight. Um, it's like 20 minutes long, 35 millimeter. You can watch it in the screening room. There was it's not like I gave people a VHS. Mm-hmm. No, we got to go in the screening room. Uh, there was a uh, I had a deal with um, Dino De Laurentiis. Mm-hmm. Actually, this is another interesting project that never happened. It was called Atlas. Mm-hmm. John Claude had an idea for a movie called Atlas, which is basically Spartacus in the future, Spartacus in space. And so guess who was going to produce this? Sam Raimi was going to produce this. Uh, <laughs> Chuck Farr, who wrote uh, Dark Man and Hard Target, yeah. co-wrote the script with me. Uh, oh Dilo De Laurentiis and Raffaello De Laurentiis were going to be the executive producers. We had this thing set up at DEG. Now, how did I get that gig? Sam really liked my, my little firefight movie. And he made Dino watch it in his 35 millimeter screening room. Dino saw the movie; he was impressed. So, there you go. You make a movie. You can, that that shows what what you're capable of, or it shows that you're just you're capable of pulling something like this together, shooting it. <clears throat> it might not be something that's going to win an Oscar, but it just shows that I actually did it. I got the people together. Uh, I got the location. I got the money. We shot this thing. It works. It tells a story. So that's uh, that's the best advice I could give anybody. What is the lesson that took the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Um, well, uh, with in the film business, I learned to be uh, assertive and to not, not take shit from people. Not uh, 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 when you're directing your first movie. I don't know if it happens to everybody, but it sure happened to me. Everybody uh, on the set, they've worked on lots of other movies. They think they know more than you. And um, they're either um, they're either downgrading your ideas, saying that's not going to work. You've got to do it this way. You've got to, if you're going to shoot a, um, if you've got to shoot, if you're going to shoot a over the shoulder shot, then you have, a, have to have a complimentary over the shoulder shot to cut to. Not necessarily, but they'll tell you that. So basically, I learned to just trust my my own instincts a lot more rather than taking. You got to take some advice, of course, but um, you got to learn how to filter out the the, the wheat from the chaff. You got to you, you got to learn which whose advice you should listen to and whose advice you should ignore. So uh, that was an important lesson to learn. And three of your favorite films of all time. Um, the, not an action movie among them, okay? <laughs> the, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. 
Always a, a, a popular a popular choice on the show. Right. Fellini's eight and a half. Another one. Okay, That's another one. one. Yeah. And uh, The Godfather, one and two. And probably the top of all of, of the movies that get mentioned that from all my guests, they're old Godfather generally. They generally lumping Godfather one and two together. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, you've got to lump the two of them. You, you can't say, you can't just say two one. because you've got to have the preface, which is one. Right, right, right. All fantastic choices. And obviously, you, th- you look at those three movies and you get Bloodsport, obviously. I mean, you just think about right, it. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, it's obvious. Add those three together. And, uh, Lionheart, Lionheart shows up. I get it. I understand. <laughs> Sheldon, it has been an absolute pleasure and honor talking to you. It's been a thrill. And again, that little uh, that little kid at the video store is uh, is very grateful for this conversation. So thank you again so much. And that little kid knows that Quentin Tarantino was doing the exact same thing. <laughs> Which makes you me... Knew that, you knew that already. Yes, I did. But, you know, that makes me sad because <laughs> because, <laughs> because, color, because Kevin Smith was doing the same thing and Quentin Tarantino and my careers are all very vastly different. But we all have our paths to walk. <laughs> but thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. Okay. Good talking to you, Alex. And we should uh, do it again sometime if you want to. All right? I want to thank Sheldon for coming on the show, dropping his knowledge bombs, and taking us back down nostalgia lane, reliving the amazing 80s action genre that he helped create. Thank you so much, Sheldon. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, please head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 163. And if you haven't already, please head over to screenwritingpodcast.com, subscribe, and leave a good review for the show. It truly helps us out a lot. Thank you again for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 